Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, please. Let's bow before the Lord and let us pray together. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I'm uh, just grateful that we can have this time now to read your word. And I know, Lord, that the thing that I'm going to talk about is how important faith is. And that seems to come up a lot in this section of the Gospel of Matthew. And so thank you for bringing our attention to it. Lord, we want to focus on you and on your word, on the truth of your word, which is life to us. Nourishment, Lord God, for our minds and for our souls. The thing, the thing that along with faithful prayer and being filled with your spirit causes us to grow is the knowledge of your word and a commitment to believe it and obey it. And I pray, Lord God, that we would have that and receive it in that spirit today, knowing that your word is a precious gift. The scriptures are precious nourishment for the Christian soul. And I pray, Lord God, we would receive it today as such. Thank you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd actually, though I'm going to concentrate the study on the beginning of Matthew chapter 16, I'd like to back up just to read through the last few verses. Uh, I kind of just went through them uh, quickly. Back up to verse 32 of the previous chapter um, and catch the story of the feeding of the 4,000 here because the, what happens in this event is really what sets the context for what happens in the beginning of chapter 16. So here we go. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 32, reading right into chapter 16. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. When his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he, got, uh, and he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning... It'll be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, They had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware 
of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine or the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right? So, uh, there you have it. Now, I wanted to back up into the end of the last chapter, in part because I didn't give it like a full treatment when I preached two weeks ago, and in part because it obviously does set the context because you have Jesus, the Lord, uh, at the end of that chapter challenging the disciples concerning their weak faith, their little faith, when they had just seen what happened at the end of chapter 15, the feeding of the 4,000. And you remember the significance, the great significance. You know, the feeding of the 5,000 that came earlier, that was in the main proper part of Galilee, which was the northern regions of ancient Israel, which was an area that was predominantly occupied by Jews, right? It's where Jesus grew up, in, in that part of Galilee. But as I described for you last week, Jesus, uh, two weeks ago, Jesus had gone up into the area of Lebanon to meet that woman from Canaan, and that beautiful interchange happened there. And then the scripture said when he came back down into Galilee, he skirted the Sea of Galilee, which means instead of dipping down on the eastern side, I'm sorry, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, which would be where he had grown up, Nazareth was in that part of Galilee, he went around it to the eastern side. And the significance of that is that uh, not, not exclusively, but dominantly, that area was occupied by Gentiles. And today that area is known as the Golan Heights and is still uh, contested among nations. But in Jesus' time, it was an area known as the Decapolis, so-called, uh, you see the preface, D-E-C, a reference to the fact that there were 10 uh, areas that combined into one, and one of the Herods was the ruler over that area as well. And that area was pre predominantly occupied by Gentiles. So Jesus had ministered to this Canaanite, this Gentile woman up north, then came down and deliberately avoided Galilee and went around to the, or the, um, the, the Jewish part of Galilee and went around to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where he meets these people. This, what ends up being this feeding of 4,000. The significance of it is that probably this group of 4,000 people was made up of a very good number of Gentiles, if not all. Probably not all, but certainly a very good number of them. And that was, that was stepping out a little bit for Jesus from his uh, maybe normal operating mode because he came and went 
to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and even instructed his disciples to do the same. But there you see in that like a great confirmation before he even laid down his life for us. You see a great uh, affirmation of the fact that salvation was going to be for all the people of the world. The fact that Jesus, not only did he go deliberately to minister to this Canaanite woman and then came back on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, but did what? Performed the same miracle that he did with the Jews, right? That's what's really profound about the whole thing is that the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the numbers are a little different, but basically it's the same thing that happened, but one of them was done among Jews and one of them was done among probably a mix, but largely Gentile region where he was. It's a great picture of the fact that the gospel was for the Jew first and also for the Greek as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, right? So in any case, he comes and you see what he does. He says he has compassion on them because they had continued with him three days and they did, Jesus didn't want them to send, the way, send them away in a way that they would grow weak and pass out on their way back home. So the disciples' response is, well, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? And maybe they should have known by now, but the question is, well, how many loaves do you have? Seven a few little fish, doesn't describe any more talk after that other than sit down, right? Commanded him to sit down on the ground, took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, this is just like when he fed the 5,000, and gave it to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And everyone ate and was filled and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. And as I pointed out before, the seven large baskets might be to show how much abundantly he had provided, but in a crowd that big, seven baskets full of food left over after feeding thousands would uh, be an incredible display of efficiency as well. Like the Lord was able to provide like just enough with a little bit left over that maybe was for the disciples or for anyone else that they chose to give it to, all right? But in any case, That was amazing. And then he sent them away, verse 39 says, got into the boat and crossed over to the west side, right? So he crossed from Gentile land over back into the more Jewish part of Galilee and came to Magdala or Magadan um, is the name of the city in that region even to this day, all right? So when he comes over there, uh, guess who we're told is waiting for him? The Pharisees and the Sadducees came testing him. Now, notice that in verse 1, we're not just talking about the Pharisees. We're talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's significant because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were often at odds with one another. You see that played out even into the days of the Apostle Paul. Theologically, they didn't agree. Even socially, they didn't agree. You know, Uh, the Pharisees were very much about the word, but they applied the word to the lives of the people that they taught by uh, making it basically a religious, external, outward thing. You saw the controversy in the previous section about the washing of the ceremonial washing of hands that Jesus rebuked and everything else. The Pharisees were very nationalistic. The Pharisees hated the Romans and wanted the Romans out. And as a result, the Pharisees were very popular among the people, especially in Judea and Jerusalem, who were always looking for a reason to start a revolution and send the Romans packing, okay? 
That was the Pharisees, and they were the dominant ones. But the Sadducees are actually included here. And the Sadducees socially were more liberal. The Sadducees also theologically were very liberal. They didn't literally believe the word. The Bible tells us they didn't believe that angels actually existed. They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's a major problem, you know, considering you're standing in front of Jesus who was about to die and rise from the dead and promises resurrection to everyone else, right? Who, who trusts in him that we will be raised to life one day as well. But they were theologically liberal and socially they were also somewhat liberal in that they were pragmatic when it came to the Romans. They were fine with the Roman leadership as long as it kept peace and maintained their authority in the land. They were very much about their power and whatever they had to do to keep it, they would do that, even compromising with the dreaded Romans. This, of course, made them very powerful. Many of the elite and the aristocratic among the Jews in Judea and Galilee were uh, of the Sadducee mindset, Um, But it made them very unpopular among the people who liked the Pharisees' nationalism and their desire to make Judea the independent nation that they thought it should be. For both parties, the one thing, though, that they had in common was this idea that the word of God prophesied that Messiah was going to come. And both parties because neither of them had the right idea concerning God, the right idea concerning the Scripture, the right idea concerning doctrine, the right idea uh, concerning the mission of Messiah and what he would be and what he would do. They had that in common, and so the great thing that they shared, even though they were on opposite sides of the aisle, the great thing that they shared is they were very concerned about this Jesus. And they were very concerned about the effect that he was having. Maybe they had heard that he had actually ventured off into Gentile land. That would have troubled both parties, right? And so when Jesus is in Galilee again, after having crossed from the east side to the west and is in this area, this region on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee called Magdala, Uh, that's when the Pharisees, they come and they test him. And you see what they ask for. They're unified in this. What? Show us a sign. Right? They came. They were testing him. Note that Matthew's text specifically points that out. Right? In other words, if they were testing him, what does that mean? It means certainly they were not convinced that he was the Messiah. Regardless of anything they heard, or anything they saw, they were not convinced. And their method of having Jesus pass the test was, look at all these things that we read about in the Bible. God did this, God did that. Show us a sign from God that God is with you and that you are the Messiah, right? Show, them a, show us a sign from heaven. Show us something in the sky. Show us something that is supernatural, Kind of a funny thing to ask from Jesus when that seems, if you read the Gospel of Matthew up until now, to be just about all that he was doing, right? Was performing all these great miracles. But you know what? And the purpose of those miracles was to show that uh, the time had come for Messiah to come, as he's about to point out. But they were not able to understand it. And I'm going to get to why. Why they were not able to understand it is the particularly important part of this story. He says, 
to them when they ask for this sign. When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Right? And everybody knows the old rhyme, right? Right? Red sky at night, what? Sailors delight. Red sky in the morn, sailors take warn. You know, you've heard that, right? You've never heard that? Raise your, I'm serious. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. And okay, so most of you have, but a good number of you have not. That's, I, I learned that from my father. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morn, sailors take warn, which is an old, an old rhyme that really basically holds true. When the sun sets and there's a red sky, usually it means that you're in the middle of a, a section of fair weather. But when you see the sun rise in the east, if the, uh, if the sky has a very distinct red hue to it, uh, that means that foul weather is near. And uh, that's an old saying, an old cliche in many cultures. And look, even Jesus himself says it here in the, uh, in the gospel as he's talking to these people. But all meteorology aside, because that's not really the point, what does Jesus, is he doing here? He's saying, you people are able to look at the sky and determine from the sky what the weather's going to be like. But what? Hypocrites. You know how to do that, but you can't discern the signs of the times. It's a direct rebuke to what both the Pharisees and the Sadducees said. Show us a sign. You're not able to understand signs, right? Now, what does he say? He famously says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And with that word, he left them. And now you know what the sign of the prophet Jonah is because this is not the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we read of Jesus saying this. Back in Matthew chapter 12, he says he speaks of the same thing, of the sign of the prophet Jonah, and explains what it is. Just like Jonah was in the heart of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man is going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So what he's saying is, You want a sign? Here's your one sign. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And I would say to you that that holds true to this day. You go to any Christian. You go to any preacher. You go before God himself and say, God, show me a sign that this is true. The answer that comes back should be, here's your sign. God gave his son for you. And he died on the cross He rose from the dead. He ascended back to heaven, and he's alive today. And if you want manifest evidence of that, look at the lives of the people who follow him. Consider the people who follow him and what they used to be and what they've become now that they follow him because he died and rose from the dead, and they trust in him. Now, let's get at... And by the way, there's a verse. Let me just read to you real quick here. Um, I guess if you want to turn there, you can. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Because, and this does speak into what uh, is, is going on here. The Apostle Paul broke this down brilliantly later. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. And it says this. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Boy, that's true, isn't it? There's no middle ground. 
Either the gospel is, and the gospel is the preaching of the cross, and that's all it is. The gospel is we're wicked, but Christ, who is righteous and good, laid down his righteous life when he died on the cross and took the penalty for our sins. And they took him off the cross and buried him in the grave, and he conquered death by rising from the dead. And that's it. That's the only hope of salvation for anyone. Listen, to those of us who believe, we say amen. Amen. To those of us who believe, we say praise the Lord. To those of us who believe, we say thank God that he did this wonderful thing. But to people who are outside of all that, it's foolishness to the ones who are perishing. It's a little tricky because among those who are not saved, of course, are God's elect who have not yet come to be saved, right? And each one of them will come to be saved. But there are those among the lost who the reality is are never going to come to the Lord and be saved. We don't know who they are, and so we preach the gospel to every creature, right? As far as you and I are concerned, every person in the world is a potential convert and believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're commanded by him to preach the gospel to every creature, right? But God, who is sovereign and knows all these things from the beginning to end, knows who's going to get saved, knows who not, in fact, has elected unto eternal salvation those who will get saved, right? And among those who will not are those who, there's no middle ground. This idea of Christ dying for our sins and rising of the dead is foolishness. So, what does it say going on in 1 Corinthians? It's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Right? And what he's doing there is he is speaking and decrying the futility of the Greek culture that Corinth was steeped in wherein everything was listened to and evaluated based on what they considered to be wise. It was a very enlightened and wise age from the perspective of that period of time in that place. And so when anything was heard, if it was perceived to be wise, it was received. But if it was perceived to be foolishness, then no. But then Paul doesn't just leave it with the Greeks. He brings in the Jews as well. And these, this is confirming what Jesus said about the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 18. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who what? Believe. The wisdom of this world is to be able to explain everything. If I can't, listen, if you can't explain creation, then I don't believe in creation. If you can't explain God, then I don't believe in God. If you can't explain Jesus, then I don't believe in Jesus. If you can't explain this stuff, supposedly scientifically in a way that I can accept and makes me comfortable and really what they mean is doesn't make me look foolish, then I'll go ahead and accept it. And of course, the Apostle Paul's response to all of that, the Christian response to all of that is, listen, understanding things that are true is great and science is wonderful, but we do not depend upon it for the gospel. Do you understand? God came and did what he did, and now through what the world perceives to be foolish, which is simply preaching the same message over and over, those who believe are saved, 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 saved. That 
is what the Christian way is all about. Through, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know him. So all the world's attempts through its own intelligence to try to understand and explain God fall short. You know what does not fall short? The B word, believe. That's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is the proud, the arrogant, the lofty who demand that everything be presented and explained in a way that is satisfactory to them. God says, not interested. Here's what I did. I sent my son. He shed his blood. He died. He rose from the dead. Believe. 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 And you're in. And you may not be as smart as the refuter. You may not perceive yourself to be as intelligent, as wise, as well-to-do, as noble, as mighty, you may not perceive yourself to be of the same social or, uh, or intellectual strata of those who disagree. It's one of the things that Christians get hung up. All these smart people, these scientists, these academics and everything else, they all refute Christianity. And somehow that's supposed to douse a fire on our faith. And here's the Bible saying, no, 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 no. That's actually God's plan. None of that was really the main point of turning to 1 Corinthians, but it gets me cranked up whenever I read that passage because isn't it nice? You feel like you go through life sometimes and, not, and you just, like nothing ever seems to go your way. Isn't it nice to be on the right side of that? You know? I, I want to be in with God who says if I believe, I am. Come to faith in Christ, friend. If you're here, to, I know most of, you, most of you are believers, but I don't know everyone in the room. I haven't met everyone in the room. I'm not going to try to figure out everybody right now. Listen, if you haven't come to faith in Christ, put your trust in Christ. You know, we, we tend as Americans to like really admire the person who is like just like kind of independent and outside the box and, and, you know, doesn't just go along with the status quo. Man, that is Jesus. That is God. God doesn't bring the gospel in such a way where he expects us to walk into it like, you know, like you'd walk into like other things that are maybe more normally embraced. He just brings this message and says, believe. And you know what happens when you believe? Listen, listen, listen. You know what happens when you believe? You encounter the one whom you've believed. You encounter him. You're not just embracing thoughts. You're not just embracing words. When you believe the gospel, you encounter the author of the gospel. You come into a relationship with the subject of the gospel, which is Jesus. When you believe the gospel, Jesus said, we will come and make our home in you. When you come to faith in Christ, he sends his spirit who comes into you and makes you alive and seals you all the way to the end. That's great. (laughs) Verse 22. Here's the relevant point. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Right? So whether it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 16 saying, show us a sign, or it's the intelligentsia, of Jesus' day or of our day saying, 
yeah, but explain this, explain that. But what about this? What? Listen, whatever it is, we preach Christ crucified. And what does it say about Christ crucified? To the Jews, a stumbling block, right? Because they want to see a sign. And the gospel doesn't give them any sign except that Christ died and rose from the dead. It doesn't give them any cosmic sign. It doesn't give them any mystical sign. It doesn't give them any flashing lights in the heavens, right? It doesn't give them, you know, uh, you know set out a $1 bill and come back 10 days later and it'll turn into a $1,000 bill, right? It, I, I, I tried it. It doesn't work. No, I'm only kidding. But, but, but the, the, no, the, listen, he doesn't give them like that, right? So it's a stumbling block because the gospel doesn't come with any signs, It doesn't come with any pillar of fire or a cloud of smoke like in the days of Moses, right? The gospel just comes as a message preached. And to the the Greeks, what does it say? It's it's foolishness because it's just a message preached. You know, when Paul went to Athens and preached, they were interested at first because they heard him walking through the marketplace and explaining to anyone who might be there all about Jesus and all about the gospel. Huh, what does this babbler have to say? And they took him up to the Areopagus, right? And he preached there. And at what point did they cut him off? When he talked about the resurrection. As soon as he mentioned that God gave this Jesus who died and rose from the dead, that was the end of it. Nah, get this, this strange, get this babbler out of here, right? Because Resurrection can't be explained by wisdom. And resurrection comes, along, comes with no signs from heaven. So the sign seekers don't want anything to do with it. The wisdom seekers don't want anything to do with it. But what? But to those who are what? Called. Called by God. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, what is it for us? The power of God. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, right? Show me a sign. No. Give me wisdom. No. But when we believe on Christ, what do we get? We get all the power of God that we would be behind any sign that he might show in us through the Holy Spirit, and we get all of the wisdom of the creator of the universe right there for us to read and feed on that our faith might grow. Christ, they're looking for signs and they're looking for wisdom. When you come to Christ and believe, you know what you get? The power of God and the wisdom of God. He is. Christ dying and rising from the dead, that is the sign. Back in Matthew. That was just a little diversion because I want to get at now. Ready? In this section... Why are they requesting signs? Why, why do Greeks, as Romans says, why do they seek wisdom? What don't they obviously have? Faith. Faith. See, see, God doesn't call us to a religion that's filled with signs. And wonders. Jesus did many signs and wonders. And they're still asking for a sign. You ever, you ever notice that? They're asking for a sign right on the heels of feeding a crowd of over 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. 
I mean, imagine Christ is over on the other side, says, show me what you got. And they hold out, they hold out the food they have in their hands. And he feeds a massive sports arena with what they have in their hands. And then he goes over to the other side. And when he comes to Magadan, they say, show us a sign. But back, <laughs> they weren't there. Why? Because they didn't believe. What does it say? It says, uh, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. See, here's what pushes faith out of a person's life. Wickedness in the heart and adulterousness in the spirit. The wickedness of heart is a blocker of faith in God. And we're all wicked, right? So what's the key? It's repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is not stop doing all these sins and start doing all that. That's, you can't do that. Repentance is that internal change that recognizes and even assumes responsibility for the wickedness of my own heart. I have sinned against God. I cannot justify myself. But there was no humility. There was no repentance here. Wickedness of heart. They just said, show us a sign. Adulterous. What is adulterous? It's a lack of faithfulness. It's not speaking about their marriages. It's speaking about their collective marriage as a nation to God. They were adulterous. They were not faithful. That is, they were looking for something outside of, you know, that's what adultery is, is when someone in a marriage's marriage looks for intimacy outside the commitment of that marriage. It's exactly what this is. They had a covenant with God, and they were looking for something that God never said that he was going to give, is I'm going to show you this, I'm going to show you that. When Messiah comes, you know, he's going to meet all of your demands and do this and do that. Listen, Messiah was walking all over the place doing all of these signs, and that's why he said to them, look, you can look at the sky. You can't even discern the signs of the times that are right in front of you already. Haven't you heard about the blind who now see? Haven't you heard about the maimed who are now whole? Haven't you heard about the deaf who can now hear? Haven't you heard about the demon-possessed who are now cleansed? Haven't you even heard about the dead who have now been raised? Haven't you heard about the poor who have had their mouths and their bellies filled? Have you not heard that the good news of the gospel has been preached all over the place? Because of their wickedness and their adulterous spirit, their unrepentant lack of humility, they had no faith. No faith. And where there's no faith, that's where questions like, show us a sign, come from. A wicked and adulterous spirit. Unrepentant, proud. You know, the gospel... Sometimes I wonder, why do I stand here? Why, why, why do I, why, why is the gospel when it's preached always like seem to involve like contention? You know what I mean? Like in, I'm just reading what it says on the page. 
but, but whenever the gospel is preached, there's always like, like I, like, like, I really, for the life of me, don't understand why everybody doesn't just believe the gospel. Right? I mean, don't you ever wonder that sometimes? I mean, the Lord came. I mean, this isn't, this isn't like hocus pocus that like historically you can't like know some of this stuff. You know, when you, that's why it's important to come to Bible studies and listen to like what the prophets say and see how ancient history corroborates everything that the prophets said and how things come to pass. Right? Part of the problem is we don't have that grounding because we don't pay attention to those parts of the Bible that, that show those things. But you come out, assemble together, listen to some of that. You get a good, deep understanding that just confirms for you the reality and the truth of the Bible. When you hear about how it corroborates history and history corroborates it, you know? But, but you have, you wonder sometimes with like, I mean, you can go to Israel and you can see the stones of the temple that the Romans threw down almost 2,000 years ago, laying there in heaps. They haven't moved in 2,000 years. You can, like with aerial photography, you can clearly see an outline of the ancient temple platform. Underneath the Muslim dome on the rock, which was built in the 7th or 8th century A.D. for the purpose of chasing Jews away who used to come every year to mourn the loss of the temple in 70 A.D., right? Under it, you can see cutouts in the top of what is Mount Moriah, perhaps where the Holy of Holies stood right in the middle of the temple. You can see, you can see for yourself things in the Bible. And then you wonder, why... Why doesn't anybody listen? Why do we have this and nobody listens to it? Why doesn't everybody just believe the gospel? Why is it such a fight to show people that God loved you so much that he did this thing for you? Jesus came. He actually was here. There's, there's, there's outside the Bible literary external references to the fact that he, was, that he actually lived And he was here. And the evidence of the fact that he rose from the dead remains in the world. And the fact that 2,000 years later, people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation of the world believe in him and trust in him. You can't say that about anything else in the world. Like, why, why don't people just hear this beautiful message that God did this thing for them? And you can be saved. Listen, That's my question today. This is going to be everybody's question one day. The day is coming when everybody, everybody is going to ask, why didn't I just believe it? Well, in the case of the Pharisees and the Sadducees here, they had a wicked, adulterous spirit. Outwardly, they proclaimed to love God and be loyal to God but inwardly they were full of pride and full of themselves. And so the signs that were right in front of them, feeding thousands of people, healing the blind and the lame, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the masses of the poor who listened to the word, not to mention the scriptural corroboration of facts in Messiah's life that they easily should have been able to discern. They were not able to discern what was right in front of their faces. And so the mouth revealed the wickedness of the heart. Show us a sign. 
show us a sign. You know, it's like if my wife makes a beautiful, wonderful dinner and we go and she cooks it all up and sets it all out and it looks great and it smells great and we sit down and it's like, why didn't you? I mean, I mean, make something else. Isn't that what it's like? Show me a sign. You can tell the weather from the sky, but you can't even see the stuff that's right in front of your face. That's what it's like. And that's why when Jesus said no sign except that of the prophet Jonah, what did he do? Adios. Yes? You like that? Sorry. 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 I got, I, got an, I got an especially wonderful reaction from the Spanish-speaking contingent. Gracias. <laughs> I know a word here and there. All right, so, uh, but that's what he did. He said that and he walked away. Now when his disciples, in verse 5, come to him, something very similar happens, believe it or not. Though this is a little different. The people that he confronted in verses 1 through 4 were people of no faith because of the wicked and adulterous spirit that they had. The people who he confronts, if you will, in verses 5 through 12 are people of little faith or weak faith, right? But in either case, the issue is faith. When his disciples had come to the other side, now, I'm not going to turn to the Gospel of Mark, which has some parallel detail. Apparently, after spending time in Magdala, they got in a boat and they crossed up to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and they came to a city called Bethsaida and uh, another notable miracle ended up happening there. All right, so that's, that's where they are. When the disciples are with them, it actually says in Mark that they only took one loaf of bread with them in the boat. Um, I guess the, ba- the seven baskets they had gathered from the previous miracle had been consumed, as you would expect. That wouldn't last very long. Um, so when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who he had just had this talk with, right? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have taken no bread. So when Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what they thought, ah, because we haven't taken any bread with us. But look at verse 8, Jesus being aware of it, right? So how loud their reasoning among themselves was, to what extent Jesus was able to hear them, I don't really know. But Jesus knew what was in them, just like Jesus knew what was in the Pharisees and Sadducees, just like Jesus knows what's in you and I, which ought to be a sobering thought and ought to be a reason why we're thankful for his grace because he knows what's in us and has brought salvation to us anyway. Praise the Lord for that. So it says, Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you've bought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 that just happened 
and how many large baskets you took up. How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And even though he basically said it the same way, the way he explained it leading up to it now caused them to understand that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of their doctrine, of what they taught, right? I explained a little bit before about what the Pharisees and the Sadducees taught. So I won't go over that again. But the big thing I want to point out to you with just the few minutes we have left here is this. The most important thing in your life is your faith. And I want to say four quick things about your faith that should go boom, 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 boom. Just so you can see. And there's, there's hundreds of things in the New Testament alone that you could say about faith. I mean, I won't even get into Hebrews 11 and some of those famous things, but really quick, I want you to turn with me to a few passages and, 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 and listen to four quick things about faith because I want you to see that the Pharisees and Sadducees were of no faith. The disciples were of little faith. You and I need to be of big, abundant faith because our faith is the most important thing that we have. Turn first to Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. I promise I'm going to go quick through this. Romans 4, 1 through thir- uh, Romans 4, 13 through 25. Romans 4, verse 13. Listen to this. Romans 4, 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through law, right? Because when Abraham lived, there was no law yet, right? But through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there's no transgression, right? I mean, sin is sin, but where there's no law that says is sin, there's no legally binding code. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, right? So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, listen to this, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. And I could go on and read the rest of this, at least all the way down through verse 22 or even verse 25, but that's probably enough in the little time we have just to explain to you this. What is Paul saying there? It is faith that brings you into, ready? A covenant with God. Now listen, a covenant with God that is nothing like the old covenant of Moses and the law, but a covenant that is like the covenant that God made with Abraham, what is the covenant that God made with Abraham? You're going to have a kid in your old age. And in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he who blesses you, I'll bless. And he who curses you, I'll curse. What was Abraham told to do? 
nothing. It was entirely a covenant of God's grace. It was just God choosing in his sovereignty to be gracious to Abraham and make this promise. All Abraham did was what? Believed. He believed. And when he believed God, he was credited with righteousness. This is the pattern for the gospel. When you and I believe the gospel, we are brought into a covenant with God, a covenant of his grace, a covenant that says, you don't have to do anything to try to save yourself. I did everything. Just trust me. Just trust me. Just believe me. And listen, when you believe, you become an inheritor of all of the promises in that covenant. God says, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Jews and all of the Gentiles. That's number one, why your faith is the most important thing that you have, because your faith brings you into the covenant, the new covenant with God. Number two, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Now get this. These verses are very familiar. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. The works come later, where where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So how we live is important, but how we live contributes nothing to whether or not you're saved. How are we saved? We're saved by his grace, his sovereign choice and goodness and gift is how we're saved. And we're saved by grace through what? Faith. Now here's the key, ready? And that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The that is your faith. Faith is a gift from God. What am I trying to convince you of right now? Our faith is the most precious thing that we have. Your faith is the most important thing in your life. Point number one was that faith brings you into a covenant with God, which is all about Him delivering blessings and promises to you just because you believe. Point number two is faith is a gift from God. Do you have anything in your life that is more valuable than a gift you got from God? Right? Faith is his gift. You know, when I was talking before about God hasn't called many noble, many might, we're talking about from 1 Corinthians, how the world considers the gospel to be foolishness. Jews seek after a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. Look, why do you and I believe? Because we're smarter than the Greeks? Why do you and I not need to see signs because we're more noble than the Jews? No, it's because God gave us a gift. God gave us the gift to do that one thing that brings his grace upon us, which humble ourselves and simply believe. Faith is the most precious thing that you have. It is a gift from God. Third, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Turn there, please. Galatians 
Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? I won't break down the rhetoric of all of that right now, but it's a very powerful argument that leads to this. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, listen, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. So what Paul is saying here is, I had to correct the little something that was going on involving Peter, because listen, we're Jews. And if we who, Paul is saying of himself and of Peter, if we who are Jews understand that we've been set free from pursuing justification by the works of the law and have been saved by faith in Christ, how dare we compel Gentiles to keep the works of the law? They can't justify themselves that way, right? You understand that? So what is the point here? Faith is freedom from law. It's not a license to a lawless life. That's a different battleground, a different area to talk about. But when it comes to trying to pursue justification before God, when it comes to try to have a place in heaven, what your faith is, is freedom from trying to have to earn it yourself by your works. It's, listen, It's the reason why when you heard about Jesus, you don't have to get circumcised, you don't have to observe dietary laws, you don't have to observe calendar laws, you don't have to observe ceremonial laws, you don't have to do this, cross this I, dot this I, cross this T, do this, do that, observe this, observe that, don't eat this, do eat that, ceremonial washing of hands and all the extra things like the Pharisees did. The reason for that is your faith has set you free from that. Your faith in Christ is enough to bring salvation. Your faith is the most precious thing you've got. Number one, it brings you into the covenant with God. Number two, it is a gift from God. Number three, it is freedom from trying to justify yourself before God by law. And then fourth, faith is at the root of, now, of how you now Live. We went over this recently, but turn to James chapter 2 and verse 14. See, I told you this would go fast. James chapter 2 and verse 14. James 2, 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you don't give the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also by itself, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, to explain what that means, go to the next sentence. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Ready? Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith what? By. By my works. Right? So what does that say? It doesn't say that we're saved by works. What it says is the root of how I now live is my faith. My faith in Jesus is what brings salvation. 
My faith in Christ is what has brought me into the covenant. My faith in Christ was a gift from God. My faith in Christ has set me free from pursuing the works of the law to justify him. But now it is at the root of how I live. You take those four things, and I dare you, I challenge you to bring before me anything you have in your life that's more important than your faith. Your faith brings you into the covenant with, Abraham, uh, with God, like Abraham did. Your faith is a gift from God. Your faith is freedom from trying to justify yourself before God. And your faith is at the root of what your life produces. You got anything in your life more important than that? If you do, you need to step back and do a little life assessment a little self-examination. Because I would submit to you, if those four things that I just presented to you are true, and I'm pretty sure they are, you don't have anything more important. And so what ought you to do? What's the application of this? Well, there were two parties in the passage in Matthew. There were the Jewish religious leaders who had no faith, and there were the disciples who had little faith. If you are of no faith, My prayer is that God would grant to you that gift that I know that he gave to me to trust in him. And I would encourage you, come to Jesus and believe on him. Trust in him with all of your heart. You know, the Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you understand, if you understand, and I pray that you do, that you have sinned against God, you have broken his commandments with your life, you've told lies, you've stolen things, you've dishonored your parents, you've used his name in vain, you've been an adulterer either in practice or in spirit, you've been a murderer either in practice or in spirit. Oh yes, even if you've just hated someone, you've committed murder in your heart. If you can humble yourself before God and recognize that that sin prevents you from ever, renders it completely impossible that you would ever be justified in yourself before God. I've got good news for you. That's why Jesus came, because God loves you so much that Jesus came, shed his blood, and died. And when he died, he paid the price for all of your law-breaking. And then he rose from the dead. Come to faith in Jesus. Bow yourself before him. Pray to him. Receive him, and he will make you his child. And secondly, if you're like that other party, the disciples, and you're of little faith, you need to apply yourself diligently to things that will cause your faith to grow. Oh, yes, faith grows. Did you know that? Faith is not designed by God to remain in its infantile state when we first come to him. God's word, a steady diet of reading and studying God's word will cause your faith to grow. Fellowship among other believers who have faith will cause your faith to grow. Sharing your faith, sharing the gospel, being part of the process of spreading the word will cause your faith to grow. Walking in the spirit will cause your faith to grow. Praying and praying every day without ceasing will cause your faith to grow. Apply yourself to the things that cause your faith to grow. And then you won't have concerns like, oh, it's because he said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Get your faith grown up past just concerned about the food you put in your mouth. Get your faith past just strictly earthly concerns. 
Come to church. Come to Bible studies. Come to prayer meetings. Come to fellowships. Satan will gladly hold your hand if you decide, eh, I don't need that. Pray every day. Read your Bible every day. Invite people to come to church things to hear the word. Open your mouth and share the word with them yourself. Listen, Satan will stand right there and rub your back as you avoid all of that and make you feel okay about it. Because listen, Satan didn't want you to get saved to begin with, but if you have, he walks around like a luring lion seeking whom he may devour and would love you to just stay in that infantile faith that never grows. If you're a Christian, apply yourself diligently. What did we just establish today? It's the most important thing you've got. It's the most important thing you've got. Nurture it. Cherish it. Nourish it. Maintain it. God gives you spiritual blessings that are strong enough to pull down strongholds. But you need to come to him. James says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you on behalf of God. God bless you. Thank you for listening today. Jed, Fanny, come on and lead us in a hymn.